0: Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. In this bumper bonus episode, Free Movement Editor Colin Yeo is interviewed by Satbir Singh, Chief Executive of the Migrants' Rights Charity JCWI. The subject of the interview is of course Colin's book, published on the 29th of June, which is an attempt to explain the workings and non-workings of the immigration system to the general public. And to mark the publication day, Satbir kindly agreed to host a launch event over Zoom to talk about the themes of the book and to put some questions to Colin from free movement readers. The interview is also available on our YouTube channel if you'd like to see their splendid lockdown beards in full glory. The uh, next voice you'll hear is that of Satbir Singh, Chief Executive of JCWY. So welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon um, for this conversation with Colin um, about his new book. Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our broken Immigration System, which I have spent the weekend reading, and it's out today. I can assure you it was a very, very enjoyable read. Um, Colin is a blogger, writer and campaigner and a barrister with Garden Court Chambers here in London. Many of us will know Colin through the high quality work he undertakes as a specialist immigration barrister, working as he does across all aspects of immigration law. Many more will know him as the editor of Free Movement, one of the UK's leading sources of analysis, opinion, and commentary on our constantly shifting immigration law landscape. Conan joined Garden Court Chambers in 2013, and before coming to the bar, he was Director of Legal Services and Training at the Immigration Advisory Service, prior to which he worked as a legal officer at the Refugee Legal Centre. It's my pleasure to join Colin today to talk about his much-anticipated book, which of course is out today in all good bookstores. So we'll get the conversation started, and I should add that uh, people joining us can use the Q&A function on Zoom, I think, um, to post questions there. We probably won't have time to get through all of them, but we will try to get through some of them, if not most of them, at the end of this conversation. Um, So some people joining us today might not be familiar with you, Colin, or necessarily with the subject matter of immigration law. Uh, So I suppose as a way to start the conversation, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to immigration law, what drew you to it, and and how that journey has helped shape the thinking that we see in this book?
1: Well, first of all, before I say anything about that, just thank you very much for agreeing to help with this, Sapir. It's very much appreciated. yeah, I think like like quite a lot of immigration lawyers, I kind of fell into immigration law. So um, I was looking for an area of law to work in. And a friend of a friend worked for a charity called the Immigration Advisory Service. Um, I actually applied for a, a job at JCWI, um, but didn't hear back. I Don't worry, I've, I've, I've forgiven you guys about that. Um, and um, eventually somebody was desperate enough to want to take me on. It was a time, this was in... This was in 2000s. There was a, a big surge in the number of asylum seekers. Um, the government funding for this kind of work was quite generous in those days. And I think that's how people saw it at the time. But certainly in hindsight, it was. And, um, you yeah, know, there, there was a a big demand for legal services. And I kind of was able to 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 get a job despite not having a lot of experience or really any experience in the field um, at that time. And then I, I worked for charities for um, six years Reluctantly, came to the bar to finish my qualifications. I took a sabbatical from my job. I didn't tell the chambers; they're now defunct, so it doesn't matter. I can say this in public. I didn't tell the chambers that I was joining Renaissance that I fully intended to go back to my old job um, afterwards. But um, but that was my intention when I went to do my pupillage. Um, and and I, I find that I enjoyed life at the bar. It offered a lot of flexibility, and and so I stayed. So it's been, yeah, it's been twenty years. Um, six years for charities, and and then um yeah the rest of it as is, is a self-employed barrister Great. now this
0: book is i mean it's, it really speaks to the sort of breadth and depth and length of your experience that you have developed um it's laden with you know numbers and references to cases and to legislation it's a very rigorous forensic and quite a stark account of how our borders came to be you know, quite as broken as they are today. And I think anyone who's got even a passing interest in immigration law and policy should go out and buy a copy and read it. But but it's also a great book about people. Um, In every chapter, there's vivid, really sensitively told stories about individuals and families whose lived reality is those borders. Um, You know, a PhD student whose visa refusal letter never got sent to her who only finds out that she's been refused when enforcement bans turn up at her house and detain her and her partner for two weeks, or or the asylum seeker who was told that he couldn't possibly have crossed Zaire River because the Secretary of State believed that he would have been eaten by a crocodile if he'd tried. Um, some of these cases are absurd, they're heartbreaking, they're sort of unbelievable. Um, now, I, of course, you know, I know the answer in some ways to this question, but but for everybody else watching, how representative are these cases of what you see as an immigration lawyer? Um, how bad is it, and and do you, do you feel that it's gotten worse over time?
1: Oh well, I, obviously the the truth is that um, I've picked those examples partly because um, they seem quite stark, and and partly because also they're representative of of deeper problems in the system. And that's what I've I've, I've tried to do throughout the book is kind of illustrate the points that I'm trying to make um, by telling real-life stories. And some of those are drawn from the case reports. They're not cases that I was personally involved with. And others of them are cases that, from my own personal experience, or a few of them in the family chapter where I I spoke to people specifically um, for, for for the purpose of writing the book and um it 's that big difference isn 't it between migrants and immigration or immigrants and immigration um, and the kind of the, the, the kind of people who are much more sympathetic are capable of seeing migrants as human beings as people as neighbors, and so on, and the people who are much less sympathetic quite often see it as a kind of as a phenomenon as an issue as opposed to as as a bunch of people, and that's that's one of the big breakthroughs with um, with immigration issues. I think is where you can get people to start reconceiving of immigration as being a lot of immigrants whose lives are profoundly affected by these laws. Then that makes a big difference. And just as an aside, you know, as a barrister when you're in court, one of your big um, jobs is to try and get the judge to see your client as being an actual. Human being, as opposed to just uh, an example of a trend that they're familiar with from other cases or something like that. So, sort of trying to personalize things is a really important um, advocacy tool, both in court, but also I think as a as a sort of campaigner and 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 in a wider sense. Now,
0: in the book, you go you go all the way back to you know 1962 with the Commonwealth Immigrants Act. Um, what do you feel the direction of travel has been since then? Where has where has it? How has I guess immigration law evolved? How's the practice of immigration law evolved? And where do
1: you see that direction moving? I'm not quite so old that I can go all the way back to 1962. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I think you you can break it into phases, and um, I think there's a period really from the 60s onwards, where what what academics have described as a zero immigration policy. And it's not that there was literally no immigration. There was actually a a reasonable amount of immigration from the 60s onwards, even after the restrictive legislation of of, of 1962, 1968, and so on. But that the idea was basically to keep immigrants out and only to allow in the the bare minimum that were necessary um, for family reunion. There were very few work permits, that kind of thing. Uh, and almost no asylum seekers in those days, just a, just a handful, really. And then that kind of um, strict application of entry criteria, strict entry rules, um, proved to be insufficient for keeping immigrants out in the 1990s with the growth of uh, the numbers of asylum seekers from the early 90s onwards. And a, a new raft of policies starts to get introduced, these kind of deterrent policies. So not only have you got policies trying to keep people out, Um, that that sort of restrict the actual entry rules, but also you've got a set of policies that try to persuade people not to come in the first place, um, even if they come irregularly or um, illegally in in the language that, that ministers prefer. Um, and you, you see that with the kind of cuts to mainstream benefits for asylum seekers. It gets a lot worse in the early 2000s. There's a whole sort of range of measures that were introduced by the Labour government at that time um, to make life very difficult for asylum seekers. But what's what's interesting is that around the same time, um, suddenly the entry rules are liberalised to a significant extent. I don't want to overstate that too much. The the family rules were never liberalised massively. Um, But, for example, you've got the abolition of the primary purpose rule, which infamously kept a lot of families apart at that time. But what what you definitely have is an expansion of all the economic migration routes so instead of the zero immigration policy of the kind of post-war years from the 1960s onwards, you've got a policy of actually welcoming in certain types of, of migrants. Um, and then from 2010 onwards, uh, not only do you close up the entry routes again and, and reintroduce the kind of you know, a- attempt at zero immigration, but you also spread the deterrent policies to all types of migrants as well. It's just this all-out assault on the idea of immigration, sort of driven by the net migration target, which of course is, that's not a complete answer. What's the net migration target driven by as well? That's driven by, partly by politics, um, partly by just not liking immigration, I think, when it comes down to it. That's that's, that's ultimately what drives the net migration target. Um, and yeah, you get this this tightening up of the entry rules combined with this um horrendous range of deterrent policies like the hostile environment, citizen citizen immigration checks and, and and so on, all with the intention of of putting people off um coming to the UK. And
0: the impact of that, you know, you really lay it out in very clear terms has been sort of overwhelmingly negative for the people who, you know, have to cross those borders, for people who have crossed them and who are living here. And and one thing that really stands out is you don't shy away in this book from from explicitly saying that this is a lot of this is incredibly political. Quite early on in the book, you mentioned race as a driver of legislation in the 1960s. You know, I think at one point you say that successive governments have basically pursued an exclusionary citizenship policy that's rooted in race, Um, and and you describe throughout the book a system of borders that, you know, through successive governments has pretty much failed everyone. Wherever your opinion is, whatever you think about immigrants or immigration, there's pretty much nobody that's left happy with the arrangement, and certainly the people who do migrate, you know, have their lives pretty badly affected by some of these measures. What, if anything, would you say is the kind of driver of that failure? If we think about any area of policy, whether it was agriculture or tax or aviation or something, it's pretty hard to conceive that governments for 40, 50 years would get away with that degree of essentially failure. How and why do you think they get away
1: with it? That's a really good question. And before I answer it, though, not everybody's unhappy about the current mess. And, you know, it's, if I allow me to be flippant for a moment, you know, it's great for business when you're an immigration lawyer, because, you know, suddenly, everybody needs our help. And, you know, when I, when I it makes me sound ancient saying this, but you know, when I started out as a young immigration lawyer, you didn't need help with a spouse visa, for example, or even necessarily with a work permit application, they were things that were, help was optional, like doing a, a tax return, unless your case was unusually complicated, you can just get on with it and do it yourself. And that, I, I don't really think that's true anymore. I'm always a bit nervous of overstating how complicated things are because it sounds like a lawyer pitching for business. It's like, oh no, you can't do it yourself. You need my help or whatever. Um, but I, I think, yeah, it has reached a point where I can, I can honestly say it really is complicated and it's a bad idea for for most people to try and try and do it by themselves. But as, as to what's driven the, the mess and how, how something so unsatisfactory for everyone has, has been allowed to come back, I, I, don't, I don't have easy answers. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of different things. Um, one of the things I, I suggest in the book, which isn't necessarily terribly helpful because it's almost impossible now to change, is the, uh, and this is a sort of a lawyer answer as well, but I think there's, there's some validity to it, is the, the structure of immigration law because the, in, in the, the foundation of immigration law is the Immigration Act 1971. And when that legislation was passed, Parliament gave the executive, the government, huge discretion, huge discretion to determine the immigration rules. And for decades, the government acted in a relatively restrained way. And I don't want to say the rules were great or anything like that, but you didn't see them being changed on a regular basis Um, the first ever set of immigration rules were actually voted down by parliament and I don't think that's ever happened since. Um, So um, there's, there's basically almost no parliamentary scrutiny and the rules can be changed at will by the Home Office without any input from civil society, without any opportunity for lobbying or for external input, without any input from other government departments and they can just act on their own and that's that's great. They they feel they feel that's great. That's a superpower to have when you're in government because you can just do what you want to. It's an unfettered discretion essentially. Um, but that's a really bad way of making rules, and I think that is actually to a significant extent to blame for the mess we've ended up in because you've got this kind of. Uh, layered set of rules that has been introduced over many years where s- rules still exist that go back to the 1970s like the uh, well certainly the uh, 19, uh, 1980s like the UK ancestry visa why, why does that still exist why hasn't that been reformed and the the tests that you still see for um, spouses, the the genuine and um, subsisting marriage, there's some really antiquated language Mm -hmm. that's still used there. So you've got this kind of different generations of rules that have been introduced at different times and and, and it's a terrible mess. And I think one of the things I've said in the book is that it's naive to think that that's not now a deliberate tool of policy, basically. The fact that it's such a mess, I think... Has come about because of structural reasons, but also through incompetence. But it's kind of—I feel like—it's been embraced by government since sort 2010 onwards um, as being a useful um, barrier to to immigration. It's a, it's, mm. it's used as a tool to try and stop migrants from coming to the UK because they they're always at risk of falling into illegality. And being um, forced out of out of the system, and um, yeah I, I think that's that 's basically become deliberate now so we 've got you know the lawyers amongst us will know that there 's uh, what we call the simplification project going on the um, um, the what you call it the law society the law commission. Um, is, is is working on a new set of rules and so on. The Home office is talking the talk of of simplification, and it certainly sounds, sounds like it 's going to be a bit better than it is at the moment, but because it 's so awful at the moment that 's not necessarily saying very much and i 'm a bit skeptical about whether you know the reform is is really going to be all that serious or or, or well intentioned and and of course one one aspect of
0: a kind of massive nebulous set of complicated sometimes unwieldy unworkable and in some places i guess incompatible with each other rules around immigration is that you you end up with the legal system not necessarily aligning with life with reality and in your book when you talk about family when you talk about people who build lives in a place where they've sort of put down roots you quite explicitly say that people aren't going anywhere they have come here. This is their home. They live here for all intents and purposes. This is where they belong now. And and the law doesn't necessarily reflect that. Um, do you think that that increasing use of complexity, the increasing use of um, sort of enforcement or or deterrent measures in the immigration system, has contributed to kind of people not remaining documented? That there is a correlation between. That complexity and the growth in the undocumented or irregular population. And I know that in the introduction you used several different um, terms for it, so I'll let you choose which one uh, which one you use now.
1: Yeah, and it's it's um, it, it's interesting the the language. And um, there's, I've, I've started the book with a, a short note on on terminology, which is a really exciting start to to a book, obviously. And I, I've I've plumped for the word unauthorized um, population, one. and the reason for that is because. Um, I feel a bit of a stickler on this, but undocumented, which is is the common language used by campaigners, it, it doesn't quite capture the situation in the UK for me because um, the, the, the whole Windrush problem was people who were lawfully resident but didn't have documents. And, you know, where undocumented is used to mean illegal or, or outside the law um that, that's not quite right, because actually a lot of undocumented people are lawfully resident. Um, so the, the word I've used is unauthorised, and that's that's used by some academics um, as well. So it's not that I've cooked that up completely by myself. I'm, I'm sort of drawing on other work using it. But um, yeah, I, I return to the question. Absolutely, yes. I think that that is deliberate. Um, there is, there's real, by its nature, there's, there's real uncertainty about how many unauthorised migrants there are in the UK. And, you know, there have been a couple of research reports recently which have, have given estimates which are quite different. Um, there was the Pew Research where they gave a range, the upper end of which was 1.2 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the uh, research that was commissioned by the the Mayor of London where I, I took the lower range of that. I think that was 600,000 um, nationally. So I've, I've repeatedly used the figure 600,000 to 1.2 million, which is Quite a substantial range of, of of people, but of course, you know how how would anybody know how many unauthorized migrants there are? They don't sort of hold up their hands to be to be counted by its nature, um, and you know there, there does seem to have been a very substantial growth in that population, and um, that's what the research suggests, and common sense would suggest it. You know, there have been all sorts of policies that we would have expected to have increased the the unauthorized population. The immigration fees, the complexity, that, that all goes to sort of force people out of legal status. And yet it doesn't do enough to force them out of the country. And, that, and that's, a, that's a real problem. It's, it's kind of the, the hostile environment system and this kind of um, deliberate shifting of people into illegality. It creates this large unauthorized population. It doesn't force them out removals are going down, you know, people would be surprised to know perhaps that there are only around 8,000 removals, forced removals per year. There, you know, if there are 1.2 million unauthorised migrants, that, that's obviously you know, that, that's the population that's going to grow when those figures look like that. And it seems to me that it's, it's an issue that should, certainly shouldn't be ignored. I'd like to say can't be ignored, but you, you don't know with politicians. They're quite good at ignoring things when they want to. Um, but it, it feels like no responsible politician Um, could ignore that any longer and that we really do have to look at um, ways of bringing as many people in one go into into legality but also creating some proper long-term regularization routes in order to stop that population from building up again and also reform the rules again with a view to stopping that population from growing up again, because having a really large unauthorized population is—it's not just a disaster for them, but it's—it's it's just a—it's a social disaster just generally. Having a kind of, you know, large illegal exploitable group of of of, of people—that's just—that's really bad public policy. And in your book, I think
0: you, you use the phrase. Uh, somewhere that it's 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 become incredibly easy to become undocumented, while being incredibly difficult to become documented again. Um, which really speaks to the sort of length to which, or or the need for those for those um, safer, sort of more accessible routes to regularisation. Um, towards the end of the book, you lay out a sort of roadmap. Um, and a kind of second set recommendation, some of it's very common sense stuff very pragmatic very practical um, and it's sort of hard to disagree um, with with any of it although I'm sure that ministers um, will find will find some inventive way um, if they were forced to read this book um, to find objections to it um, if you were sort of charged today with um, know undertaking this kind of reform fixing these broken borders um creating a fairer system that sort of works better for everyone including those that use it what would the priorities be um where where would you begin
1: i think the the standout one thing to just change straight away is the high application fees because um for for two reasons one because it does force some people into illegality but secondly, it, it punishes even those who can afford to pay them and it hampers their life chances and it hampers the life chances of their children. It gives them a lot less disposable income than they would otherwise have. Um, and they have to they have to sacrifice all sorts in order to, to fund those fees. And I sort of I don't have necessarily the same objection to high fees on entry, because you can sort of choose whether to come in the first place or not. And you know, we can have arguments about, you know. A lot of us would, would welcome migration. Some people don't. But I can see that having fees at the, at the initial entry point isn't quite as objectionable as having the fees once you're here um, because it just doesn't force people to leave if they can't pay them. They do end up going, going underground. Um, so the fees will be a, a, a really important start. But that's a really trivial issue as well in some ways in the sort of wider sense because it doesn't deal with any of the, the serious structural issues with immigration. Um, immigration and citizenship. And and that's I, I use the, the word citizenship as well because it's not just about immigration. I think a lot flows from the very exclusionary approach to citizenship that the United Kingdom has had since the 1960s, where there's been a deliberate government policy of keeping the numbers down. And it's one of the things I look at in the book is, you know, this is actually, I'm not just making that up. It's, you know, it's, it's written down in memos. You know, there is an official policy to keep the numbers down. And that kind of has a knock-on effect across the board and on the kind of mentality that drives um, a lot of the immigration rules as well, because the immigration rules are often the gatekeeper to to, to citizenship status as well. Um, So I, I think having a proper think, deep think, about what our approach to citizenship is seems to me to be a good starting point. And that's also because it's not just it, I think it really helps inform what then follows and how we disc- we talk about immigration. But it's also potentially a bit less controversial than talking about immigration. I think there's more potential for um, cross-party political support for reform of citizenship laws and to think about, you know, for example, just and this is in some ways a really simple thing, but also quite important: is the grant of British citizenship. Does that help people integrate, or is it a reward for having integrated? And mm. I, I don't know. You know, that's uh, those sorts of issues. Are, I think are, are actually very important. You know, if um, if citizenship is about integration, then why have we got a test that excludes certain people? And th- there's a racial element to that. If you look at the numbers of people who fail the test from um, white dominated countries then it's very low if you look at the number of people who fail the test from um, countries with a, a high sort of black or asian population then it is very high um, and you know that that that's really not great in this day and age um, so I, r- think game, yeah, I think it's a rigged game yeah it really is yeah and it, it's it, it's quite interesting i think so there was a time when citizenship was discussed properly and um, I don't want to look back on David Blunkett's tenure as, as Home Secretary with too much fondness, because a lot of us felt very critical of what he was doing at the time. But at least he was talking about these things and thinking about these things in a way we just haven't seen since then. And I think without a doubt, there are all sorts of things that Blunkett got wrong and his attacks on the judges were, were sort of, you know, a uh, set, set of an extremely bad precedent for things that we've seen even even worse since then. For example, um, and having a test that bars some people from achieving citizenship when it's about integration doesn't really seem to make much sense. Although, you know, perhaps the test could also be seen as forcing people or having a sort of educa- educative function. You know, if you have to learn these things in order to. But but th- these are complex questions. But there's much more room to talk about them in a less heated way. I think. Um, than about immigration, and and so that's kind of it, it, it. Doesn't seem it seems perhaps counterintuitive to start with citizenship because that's not the big pressing issue as far as most people are concerned. But that's perhaps makes it an easier starting point in some ways, a less charged starting point, and it's a more profound starting point that might then have other consequences later on.
0: I think that goes to the heart of the you use the phrase "citizens in waiting" to describe you know, the ideal type approach to people who, who arrive in the UK. Um, and perhaps, you know, there is some use in in looking at immigration policy through the lens of, you know, what happens once people are here, what is the sort of pathway towards kind of becoming part of their community, their society. Do you do you do you think that perhaps sometimes when we when we discuss, either as lawyers, as, as sort of policy folks, as as, as government ministers or campaigners, um, that when we talk about our immigration system and our borders that we we tend towards a discussion of of the border as sort of something that people cross and therefore we're talking about populations who haven't yet arrived uh, questions about numbers and quotas and tiers and thresholds and and that we don't necessarily talk enough or focus enough on what happens what that journey is like when people when people arrive here and everything that happens from that point onwards
1: I I think I think that's I think that's right, and um, for me, it feels non-negotiable that once migrants are here, they need to, they need to be treated with respect and humanity, and be given a route to properly settle and and become citizens. Um, not least because then they're not leaving you know they're not they're not going anywhere <laughs> and it, once once a migrant is admitted for the purposes of of work or family or for asylum you know most of them are going to stay and it's either going to be that they stay lawfully or sometimes unlawfully and the idea that we should be punishing them with double taxation making their lives really difficult and miserable and forcing some of them outside the law before they then get to stay and become citizens, uh, as some sort of uh, like hazing experience or something is is just it just doesn't make any sense. It's it's crazy. Um, so I, I, th- I think that that is really important. Yes. Um,
0: well, we're at the half we're at the half hour mark. So I'm going to turn to some of the questions that we've got, and I can see the um, the Q and A thing lighting up, and I've got some 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 questions that we we received a little bit earlier. Um, from uh, let's have a look. There's quite a few actually. Um, let's go through this list over here. Um, at the risk of preemptive disclosure, this is from from Olu. Um, at the risk of preemptive disclosure, still await my copy of the book. Um, did you find a correlation between the control of immigration and um, illegal migration? If so, what direction has it taken?
1: Um, I I think that that, that sort of touches on what we were just talking about, doesn't it, with this unauthorized population. And it's it's this difference between the wishful thinking of politicians um, where they think that other people's lives are very simple and easy to govern and the actual reality of how people live their lives and experience their lives. And just because you set a law that um, somebody has to comply with and you're, you're, the notion in, in Theresa May's head, and say with family, I think family is a really good example of this because ministers or Theresa May, they never said what should happen to a family that doesn't meet the minimum income threshold. Should that family split um, and the British citizen remain in the UK? Should that family go and be exiled abroad? Um, or should that family have never formed in the first place? And one suspects that it's the latter that they hope for, but that's not the reality of people's lives people then have to make that horrible choice. You know, do they, do they live illegally or do they split up or do they live in exile? Um, and civil servants at the Home Office have been left trying to kind of fill in the gaps. And you see these absurd reasons for refusal letters referring to staying in touch by modern means of communication and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I, I feel a little, t- tiny, teeny, teeny bit of sympathy for civil servants having to fill in the gaps where it's ministers who've made these decisions And the ministers haven't given any steer. They haven't said what their expectation is or how the policy will actually work in practice. And then maybe they just hoped that these families would vanish or something, I don't know. Um, But yeah, there is this big gulf between what people, what ministers expect from the controls that they set and then Mm -hmm. how people actually behave in in real life. And that's what has led to the the apparently huge growth in the unauthorised population. On the subject of
0: family, I just wanted to pull up the, the chapter of the title, um, if people can
1: see it. So you can't hug
0: Skype, which I think is a, I mean, it sort of, it's quite a good direct rebuttal to this modern methods of communication idea, but it's also something that I feel perhaps you know after lockdown lifts and people are sort of talking about the difficulty of maintaining a family life um, should actually become perhaps part of our, our our wider national conversation about the fact that we still legislate to force people to do this, um, and we certainly see, you know, letter upon letter from constituency MPs on behalf of clients and and people we work with, which explicitly tells people that they were in they should have been in full awareness of the immigration rules at the time in which they entered into a relationship, which is, which is the most miraculous kind of um, intellectual acrobatics that's being done there. Um, uh, got a question here from. Um, I've got a lot of people commenting on your bid, um, and uh, <laughs> and in a, uh, way, in, a, in a good way. In a good way, and uh, I've got a question here um, about the Windrush Lessons Learned review from Liam, um, who asks if you think that the acceptance by the Home Secretary or her announcement that she's willing to implement um, the recommendations of the. wendy williams windbrush lessons learned review marks a turning point in the institution's view of migrants or if it's just lip service
1: i'd love to believe that she's serious i just i just can't i i'd love to be proven wrong on that i may maybe maybe seriously maybe they are actually going to do some serious deep thinking and introspection about what they've done to people but I just their, their history is such that I really just can't believe it. I, I, I I'm going to flip that one for you. What what, I, what do you what do you make of it at JCWI, you guys? Uh,
0: the line is the line is that we're we're encouraged by her commitment, but the jury is very much out. Um, well, you know, I'm personally quite surprised that she, the, the Home Secretary, said point blank, "I will implement all thirty recommendations," and then you sort of think, "Well, that's." You're quite wedded um, to doing the exact opposite of what those recommendations say, and you ran for election. You've got an eighty-seat majority on a manifesto that pointed to doing the exact opposite. You have a constituency that you sort of you bait um, over the issue of doing the exact opposite. So, so I think we'll just have to wait and see, and obviously keep a very close eye on it. I I do have very low expectations. I think that we'll see the bare minimum coming out of it, but hopefully that you know there are some small areas of policy where you can get some substanti- substantial changes. Um I mean you you yourself said you know fees is not exactly the most systemic change, but but just changing fees and lowering them can actually have a real sizable, tangible impact on a lot of lives. So if we can sort of see some of those changes, even that would be would be progress in some way. Um, I've got um I've got a very broad question here um, from Leanne. Um, just see if I can pull it up. Um, in an ideal world, and I, I guess this is this is referring to the power that the Home Secretary has um, through secondary legislation, um, how could Parliament become more involved in immigration law and policy within the scope of the powers it currently has? <laughs>
1: That's uh, that's something I don't know if that's taken from the book, but it's one of the things that I actually um close close the book with. I think it's at the end of the conclusion, in fact, is saying that I you know, ideally, so I think some parliamentary input into the immigration rules could be transformative. Now that's really naive and optimistic potentially. Um but because, I mean, we talked about this earlier with the, the way that the 1971 Act um works and the way that it just gives huge discretion um to to ministers. Um, but, if there was more parliamentary input into the setting of rules it 's by no means a sort of panacea it doesn 't and the, the quality of parliamentary debate isn 't that great frankly sometimes, um, but at least it offers some a, an opportunity for input from outside sources and for lobbying uh, for civil society um, and for other uh, influences than just for home office um, because you know one of the things we 've seen over the last few years is. The Home Office cracking down on international students and on economic migration in ways that seem to be sort of self-harming for the for the country because they can just get on with it themselves and they don't care what other departments and other civil servants um, think about things. So um, some sort of opportunity for there to be wider input into the setting of the rules um I, I would say is a very good thing, but it, it's almost impossible because of the structure of immigration law, and no one but no one seems to be suggesting rewriting the nineteen seventy one Act or the government, the executive giving away its powers to do exactly what it wants when it wants. So um yes it it could, but but probably no it won't, I think in answer to the question.
0: Um, David Owen asks um, whether asylum and migration policy should be removed from the home office and if so it's got a second question which is whether there should be a distinct ministry for this or whether different types of migration policy and this is I guess something that gets bandied about every so often as a policy proposal should those different bits of migration policy be distributed across different ministries business education foreign office etc.
1: Yeah it's 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 a good question I'm a bit sceptical that um of how it would work in practice because presumably the reality is that um although you might take some of those functions or all of those functions from the home office you'd also move the civil servants (laughs) responsible for it Um, and i'm not sure that that, certainly in the short term would necessarily have any beneficial um impact but on the other hand it's hard to see how the home office could do a worse job than they have been (laughs) so far Um, and you know again moving those kind of functions to different departments um would allow for input of of different thinking and perhaps you know not the quite the same different different departmental cultures having an influence and not having the same kind of millwall fan attitude of you know everyone hates us we don't care at the home office which seems to sort of dominate their um their approach to life um but i don't yeah i i i think a more a more likely um outcome would be a kind of proper program of change at the home office um which could you know could flow from the, the wendy williams review and and if that was taken seriously and was properly implemented um then having that kind of leadership at the home office might make a difference and certainly We've seen the impact of leadership in the past on home office culture. You know, civil servants have been told repeatedly by prime ministers and and home secretaries and immigration ministers that asylum is bad and the numbers need to be reduced. And they've tried to do what they can to do that. So they've refused as many claims as they can. There is this kind of culture of disbelief. Um, and, you know, Theresa May and David Cameron both, and I still struggle to believe that she said this out loud, but they both wanted to break the link between migration and settlement that's like last that's the like opposite of what, of what you should do you know the idea that you should kick people out after five years and so on um, of, of living in the country is just a really weird one um, and again you know civil servants have done what they can to implement those policies which have been set from on high so I think I think perhaps a, a more realistic way forward would be for there to be some some proper leadership from the top which changed the approach which which we saw in the early 2000s. Now, I don't want to say that this was great, but there was undoubtedly a revolution in the approach of the Home Office to economic migration. And one of the things, and it's why I sort of got into to reading, to, to writing the book, was to do a lot of reading um, around the subject as well, I Think to, to take some time to, to read it uh, a bit more widely than just the sort of law stuff to look at the policy stuff as well. And um, there's a great book by Erica Constantine, um, who's an academic up in Sunderland, I think, who looks at that kind of new Labour economic policy and the way that there was this revolution in thinking at the Home Office, led essentially by David Blunkett, um, but really because he came along at the right time. It was already in train. You had people like Jonathan Cortez at the, the Cabinet Office um, who were sort of leading a change in thinking, and just lots of different things coming together at the same time to really change the way that civil servants thought about economic migration, which had then profound um, consequences. So we, we have seen, you know, there is an example we can draw on, actually, of, of getting civil servants to change the way that they approach things, and perhaps that will be a better way. I've um, got a
0: question from Sarah Nathan here, Refugees at Home, who, who asks you to look into your I guess, crystal ball um, she asks, is there any light dawning? Are things going to get worse or better for seekers of asylum over the next six months or in the future?
1: I'd, I'd like to be optimistic but it is quite difficult with the kind of personnel that we've got in place at the moment. You know, we've got a bunch of politicians who who owe their power to um, being tough on, on immigration, tough on immigrants and it's hard to imagine them um, changing their mind about that and and therefore, potentially um, sort of alienating their their power base on the other hand we 've got a government with a majority of eighty um, and you know the way that parliamentary democracy works in the u k when you 've got a majority like that, you can do what you want and you 're not sort of beholden to a tiny number of um, MPs who who could sort of stop you from doing things so the, the, we also know that with um, brexit and with the, you know there is, there is going to be a new they talk about a new immigration system. So far, we've only really seen tweaks to the old one being proposed, but there is potential for positive change. I think um, whether it actually happens, you know, is, is is a bit questionable. But for asylum seekers in particular, what I mean, they I think is a real danger time for asylum policy over the next couple of years because, um, first of all the delays in the asylum system have been getting consistently worse um, over the last sort of two years or so. There's now a really substantial asylum backlog. And you can see that it's maybe not awful if you treat asylum seekers badly for a short time and then the genuine refugees are given proper help to integrate, get themselves set up in life and so on. Um, That's not happening at the moment. You know, they're being treated appallingly for ages Um, and then over half of them are getting asylum and again it just doesn't it's it's, it's irrational it just doesn't make any sense half of these people are going to be allowed to stay in the country long term why are we treating them so abysmally for such a prolonged period of time where they're waiting for their asylum um, claims to be decided um, and then expecting them to gratefully integrate and and do well in life having suffered appallingly in the meantime Um, so and that, that's certainly pretty bad news in the short term. Plus, with Brexit, the end of the um, Dublin Convention, the Dublin Regulation in EU law, um, that's the law, EU law that allows the UK to send asylum seekers back to other EU countries in which they were fingerprinted en route to the UK. So if somebody comes in via Greece or Italy or France, they're fingerprinted on their journey to the UK, they somehow get across the channel, they get here, they're fingerprinted by the Home Office um, here in the UK, that's checked against database, European database, the Eurodac database, and then the Home Office can send them back to those countries. Well, not anymore, because we just left the EU. At the end of this year, that arrangement ceases, Um, (laughs) The, the the fact that we won't be able to return people, when there also seems to be an, a, an uptick in the number of people who are trying to cross the channel, which really seems to trigger cert- certain politicians and, and 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 members of the public as well. I don't know if you saw island nation whatever it is or something, but people seem to get really upset about that, um, and we won't be able to send them back. So there's there's going to be politicians looking for ways to prove that they're in control, that they're in power, and you know. They'll, they'll probably end up resorting to some pretty negative politics to crack down even more on something that already seems to be pretty cracked, frankly.
0: Um, sort of every so often, have to do a little cleaning up of who I'm following and not following on Twitter because every so often you will see the usual suspects. Bring me a bring me a speedboat and twenty cameras immediately. I must go out and. Uh, posed next to a small number of desperate people uh, clinging to a life raft. Um, let me just... Uh, I've got a question here from Caroline, who's with, she's with Reunite Families UK. We're constantly amazed by how the Home Office get away with these violations. Why is this? Right now, too many families risk falling foul of the, of the minimum income requirement through no fault of their own because of the impact of COVID. And the details from the Home Office have been far too slow and lacking. And for our families, this will have far-reaching consequences. So I guess for other people listening, this is about the minimum income requirement, which is which is discussed quite a lot in the book. Uh, families have to show that the British or European partner in the UK earns £18,600 before they can live here with a non-European partner. And from next year, I guess that will also include European partners and families. Um, and of course, COVID has led to all sorts of negative impacts on household income and there's not clearly not been um enough guidance or response to that from the home office so caroline's asking how do they get away with this
1: well um, first of all hi caroline um, caroline's great and um Renite families uk are great and they, they gave me quite a lot of help actually with the um with the family's chapter of the book um, i think one of the reasons the home office is able to get away with it is um that the, the law is a very poor tool for tackling this kind of injustice. Um, And, you know, the minimum income rule was challenged um, through the courts. There was a kind of partial victory, um, but the the law isn't a very good way of trying to deal with these things. Um, And, you know, the the narrative on immigration in the sort of public sphere has been so negative for so long that um, being tough on immigrants was a vote winner, not a vote loser, and that, it does feel like that seems to have changed. I mean, one of the, the the publishers weren't terribly happy about me including charts. There aren't too many charts, i already don't worry. Um, but they didn't want any charts. I was like, well, actually, there's, there's there's a few. I like charts, and there's there's a few that I wanted to get in there, to sort of, because it makes the point visually very well. And one of them shows just the absolute sort of nose diving of concern about immigration since the referendum right. in 2016. And we saw, I talk about this in the book, um, so there's a a difficult racial dimension to this. I think we saw a lot of um, stories about white professional middle class families being affected by um, the ridiculous position of the Home Office on permanent residents. And that seems to shock people. People weren't shocked when it was you know, poor people who were black or brown. They just thought, well, that's, you know, that's that's what we want, actually. Um, but when it started happening to white middle class professionals, people started to get anxious and journalists start to get interested. And um, you know, that that created a sort of space to start criticizing the Home Office. This narrative started to grow that the Home Office was failing. And then there was some fantastic work by um Amelia Gentleman, where I think she acknowledges in her in her book, the space for her to tell the stories of the Windrush generation had kind of been opened up um, by this new narrative around the Home Office and by the stories, excuse me, the stories of of, of EU citizens who'd been affected and just look at the impact that that had. And then when people actually hear what's going on, um, they have started to change their mind. And it does feel like being tough on immigrants isn't quite, at least isn't the vote winner that it was, and actually you know it's um people 's concern is, is is so limited now that that there does feel like there could be positive room for for change but whether that happens you yeah, i'm not, I'm really not holding my breath after sort of twenty years of following this very closely you know it's mm-hmm. uh, i I'm, I'm quite skeptical about whether we're really going to see positive change, but it feels like we could do at least and um-
0: uh, it's a question for me. Um, we've got a couple more that, that that we'll we'll try and get through. But something that comes up when you when you sort of discuss that narrative, that that um, you know r- clearly very racialized frame in which we talk about some migrants and other migrants, um, some sort of pick up the public attention and or, or, or trigger interest from journalists or policymakers. Um, do you think that we are sometimes at risk, particularly when you see Um, You know, the type of lobbying that might go on around the immigration bill, you'll have, you know, the sort of business groups saying that actually we need much more liberal borders and you'll have other groups talking about sort of rights based approaches to things rather than just numbers. Do you think that sometimes with that direction of travel in the public conversation, which you say is becoming a bit more positive, that we're at risk of becoming pro-immigration without ever being pro-migrant?
1: I, I think that's a really important point, actually. Um, I think if you... I, I'm sort of reluctant to say this in public, and this is, feels pretty public, even though I'm just in a room by myself. Um, it's um, I, I don't really care that much how many migrants come into the UK in the first place. I'm very liberal. I, I, I welcome immigration. I'm not that bothered about how many numbers. I don't particularly want to... Increase the numbers. I haven't got a number that I'm aiming at. Um, I just, I, I think, I feel people move around, get over it. I think in the the J-W-I slogan, um, and and you know it does it does bring diversity and, and value to to the country we live in, and, and it's it's so much a better country than it than it was as a result. But I, I don't, I'm not holding out any flame to particularly increase immigration, but it's just non negotiable that the people who do come have to be treated properly, um, and I, I'm, I, I think. I'm worried that that is a bit close to a very discredited position. And a lot of this is still things that I'm thinking through as well, and I welcome these kind of conversations. The the discredited position from the 60s and 70s that you had to keep immigration low and keep the numbers down, but have anti-discrimination laws. Mm. And it feels like um, both parts of that equation got got broken or or were abandoned at different times. So immigration actually went up very significantly, obviously, um, from, well, really, it it starts going up quite considerably from the sort of mid-90s. And then you've got EU accession, there's very substantial immigration, um, and the anti-discrimination stuff stayed in place for a time. Mm -hmm. But since 2010, with the hostile environment, we've actually had government-sanctioned deliberate policy of increasing discrimination which again is just it just seems insane to me that that's actually official government policy but it but it is um and yeah i'm I'm not advocating for low numbers and anti-discrimination but i just i'm not as bothered i'm not as exercised about the numbers and i'm not particularly pro-immigration i don't feel like i'm part of an immigration lobby particularly but you've got to treat migrants properly and, and and treat them with respect and seeing them as citizens in waiting which uh, it's a phrase that's used in the states by campaigners and it's um it's actually you know, it, it really interesting looking at the history of this actually official status in the united states for many years um one of the things i was looking at was a um a couple of books by an, an american academic called, called hiroshi motomura and um yeah i think if you reconceive of migrants as people who are here to stay and they they should become citizens ideally over time you shouldn't force them but hopefully they'll want to become citizens at least a lot of them will and those who don't that's fine but you want to encourage them to do that um and that that really changes the way that you think about these policies that are are deliberately punishing them and actually making their lives harder in the uk
0: yeah i think i think sometimes if when i'm asked if i'm pro-immigration um i think it's a bit like asking what your opinion is on whether the sun should rise it's, it's just a thing. It's going to happen. We have to make, sort of, we have to make sure that our, our laws don't ruin people's lives in the process. Um, final question here. Um, we've got from Minnie who asks, um, given everything that we've seen and that we've learned over the last three months of COVID-19 with people uh, from BME backgrounds, particularly migrants, being at risk of contracting the disease, many of them being put at risk as a result of immigration law, Um, issues like the hostile environment and access to healthcare and also given the fact that many of those who will have been doing frontline jobs will have been migrants including undocumented migrants or unauthorised migrants who who will not have had any other choice. Uh, What policy lessons um, and what lessons more generally should we be learning and taking away from the experience of the last three months in order to fix our broken borders?
1: I think one lesson that's a, that's a really impossible question to answer i think one lesson is um, three <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, oh, i think we're just out of time um i think one lesson to take away from the last few months um is to take our wins where we can find them because uh, as a kind of sector we, we've you know we're so used to losing on these issues uh, over and over again over the last decade basically um and we've seen a number of different successful campaigns involving migrants and immigration on the NHS surcharge and so on. And, you know, there are some who say, well, we shouldn't just accept um, the NHS, um, the the, the immigration health surcharge being um, waived for some migrants. That's just not good enough. It needs to be waived for all migrants. And well, yes, that's true, but let's take what we can get uh, (laughs) at this stage. And then that doesn't that then show what a silly policy it is and how inequitable it is, and then we can try and build on that. So rather than sort of the absolutist, you know, we've got to have it all or, or nothing, I think we, we have had some wins. And it's one of the reasons, this is possibly a bit of a pessimistic note to end on, so maybe we could think of something positive to say afterwards, but um, um, one of the reasons I think that um, the handling of coronavirus and the immigration system seems to have been so appalling, really, from the Home Office, with just a few little scraps announced on the gov.uk website, as opposed to being properly enshrined in law, is that they've been careful not to introduce things that they can't then reverse easily. Because those kind of scraps, if you just put a few things on a web page, kind of the default position really is that those are temporary. Um, Whereas if you actually embed something in law in some way, yes, you could always undo it again, but it's easier for people like us to, to argue that it should be kept um so i think I, I don't know if it's incompetence that's led them to just these these this kind of approach that they've been adopting or whether it's a deliberate really well thought through policy of look we must concede nothing uh, or as little as possible basically but that that it does make it easier for them to roll back from the concessions that they've made so far
0: um, I will give you a chance to end on a sort of happy note, because um, I've just remembered that something, and it's just come up in one of the questions, something that we haven't touched on, is your affinity for Paddington Bear. Um, if uh, I don't know how many people watching have read Colin's um, review of uh, Paddington 2 on free movement, and Paddington comes up quite a bit in the book. Um over to you, Colin. I don't know. I don't know what question comes out of that, but um, I'm just trying to open the window for you to em- end on a happy and positive note.
1: Yeah, he. I, I start the book with Paddington and, and end the book with Paddington as well. And I feel it's a bit corny, isn't it? Especially you know, as a lot of people uh, only know me through writing about Paddington. Um, the, the, those sort of blog posts went went quite big and, and ended up in newspapers and so on as well. Um, but I think it's, he's a really good example of. Um, a migrant success story. Of course, unfortunately, it's a fictional example, <laughs> which is less than ideal. Um, but it, it's it's kind of easier to communicate these issues in a way because he's not real. And um, yeah, I, he, he he offers an opportunity to sort of think about the way that we welcome people, the obstacles that we've erected in the path of a kind of hypothetical um, Paddington, and to kind of communicate how immigration law works. And that's that's kind of what I've tried to do with the book. And I, I, it was partly a, a personal thing. I wanted to, to do some reading and to force myself to do some reading. I made myself do some writing as well. all two go together for me. Um, but also, hopefully, to try and communicate how the immigration system really is to a wider readership. And as as far as I can tell, because I, I don't have any sort of sales figures, as far as I can tell, you know, lots of people seem to be interested in our... In our sector, in our in-group of of people who are pretty sympathetic to these issues to start with, which is which is nice. Um, but I'm hoping that a sort of this will reach a slightly wider readership, and that's why it's I've, I've worked hard to make it as accessible as possible, as example-led as possible, um, to try and help people understand how awful the system really is and the impact that it actually has on people's lives.
0: It's a fantastic book, and I'll just read a little bit from your acknowledgements at the end. Um, You say, I've tried to steer a course between academic writing for which I am not qualified and accessible writing for which I am not trained. Uh, Researching and writing the book has been a voyage of discovery for me. And I'm acutely conscious that there is much about race, policy and advocacy that I only partially understand. I am only a lawyer when it comes down to it. You're a pretty good author as well. um, And this has been a pleasure to read. And it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Um, I hope that those who've joined us have enjoyed the last hour. Um, And if you'd you'd like to know more, again, this book is um, available pretty much everywhere from today, I think. Um,
1: Yeah, it seems to be sold out on Amazon, bizarrely. Um, So um, I I, I don't know if... If that's because they only had ten copies to start with or what, I've got no idea. But um yeah, yeah. It's it's still available I think from the publishers at least anyway. And I'm sure it'll be back in stock at Amazon in due course. And the good news is local bookstores are now reopened. So yeah, shop sure. local if you can and pick up a copy. Thanks, Colin. Thanks very much, Sapia, and bye bye everybody else as well.